this poster up here, who do you think you are? Everybody say that with me. Who do you think you are? Turn to your neighbor and tell him, who do you think you are? You know what I'm going to do? We're going to answer that tonight. Who we are in Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians is all about. Ephesians is going to tell us who we are. So you can be seated. God bless you. And um, let's, let's just pick up where we left off last week. And it's not working, Tyler. That's a great start. Let's see. There it went. No, it's not working. There we go. Yay. All right. Christ's purpose for the Christian. How many of you in here believe that you weren't just saved for heaven? Although that's wonderful. Amen. Let me see your hands. And we don't need the no-nods tonight. You know what the no-nods are? You don't do this and you don't do this. You just look at me. So we're interactive here. So how many of you realize when you got saved that the Lord had a purpose for you on earth before you go home? And what do we learn in Ephesians already? That he had that purpose already decreed before the world began. And that's mind-bending truth. And only God can do that. Have a plan for you before you are and before the world even began. He had a plan for you. Now, we closed last time after looking at the five offices uh, that Jesus blessed the church with. And they are, let's say them together, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Now, I, I believe it's fourfold. I think the pastor teacher is more like pastor slash teacher because a pastor has to teach or he can't pastor, in my humble opinion. Um, you got to be able to feed the sheep. So whether it's fourfold or fivefold, it says that Jesus himself gifted the church with these five offices apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Now, they are appointments that the Lord has placed in the church. This is when you're called to fulfill an actual office. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Now, why are they given? Why, why did God give those five offices to the church? Here's where you and I come in. Ephesians tells us in verse 12 of chapter 4. He says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, now read it with me, everybody, for the equipping, that's two of you, let's start over, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Hold it. What is that telling us about you? What is that telling us about you? Because I'm up here, you're out there. I'm called to the office of pastor. But what does it say about you, what we've already read? It says you are called to the work of ministry. Isn't that what it said? Amen. That's what it said. So I'm called to equip you to do the work of ministry. And what will it do when you do the work of ministry? It edifies the body of Christ. Amen. When you do the work of ministry. Now, most Christians raised in American churches believe that the clergy are to do the work of ministry and the laity, which would be everybody else, are to pay their salaries, benefit from the worship they conduct and the sermons they preach. Go home and say, that was a great service and now I'm going back into the world and he's the minister and I'm just the listener. Wrong. Wrong. 
That's a wrong model. Let's look at what the Holy Ghost actually had in mind for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look carefully at verse 12. It tells us uh, what apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are there for. The perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry. Now let's remove the commas and see what it says. Read this with me, would you? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now we can flip that coin and say, if everybody is not involved in their ministry, operating in the gifting God gave you when you got saved, then who's the loser? The body of Christ. The body of Christ is the loser. Because when you flow in and work in and minister out of the gift that God gave you, whatever that may be, it can be prayer, it can be service, it can be teaching, it can be uh, 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 going out there and feeding people, it can be uh, a support ministry, an encouragement ministry, exhortation ministry. Many, many things that Paul uh, lists for us in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, those, those chapters. If, if we're not moving and operating in that, then the, Christ, uh, the body of Christ is not built up, not edified like it could be. I, I know of a pastor, I, I heard him speak. He's got a huge church in California. And he walks up to people in the hallway of his church and he says, what are you doing? And if they say, well, I'm not doing anything yet, he says, I'm giving you six weeks to get to doing something or you need to go somewhere else. Well, I just came to hear you preach. Well, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to preach, but according to the Bible, you're called to do something. Now, I don't think he goes and finds them and kicks them out. But his message is is simply this, that I expect, God expects, and therefore I expect every Christian sooner or later to get on their feet and begin to move in some ministry, somehow, somewhere, some outlet where Christ is glorified and you are using the gift that God gave you because every Christian received a gift. Real quiet in here tonight. And I thought that it would be. Because a lot of people like to sit, soak, and sour. They like to just come and listen and participate and go home. And I don't, they don't want to know anybody. They don't want to fellowship. They don't want to be known. They just want to come and partake and go home and fade to black. But that's not God's plan. Now, I can tell you God's plan, and then you can do what you want with it. But I can tell you my life was changed when I began to flow in what God had called me to do. Okay, now this, this that I'm sharing with you out of Ephesians is a totally different concept. It says the prophets and apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are to equip and train the congregation for the work of ministry. Now the Greek word we translate into equipping means to fit for, to fit for, to complete. In classical Greek, the verb meant to put in order, to restore, to furnish, to prepare. So let me put it this way. There is a fit for you. There is a fit for you. There is something, you, you'll find it, you'll plug into it. And, and um, I'm going to talk about that more in a minute, how you figure out what it is. But there is a place where, where you and your gifting and your DNA and your personality and the way God wired you fits. And when you find that fit, 
It is a blessing. Okay? So that's what that word means. Now, let's be sure we get this. Christ Jesus gifted his church with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in order to prepare and equip God's people to find their fit. For works of service. Okay? And for building up the body of Christ so that we may reach unity in the faith and grow into the full maturity of Christ. In other words, folks, the job of pastors, teachers, and other ministers is to equip and prepare and train the believers so they can learn to function in their own ministries. Now, how's that for a revolutionary thought? How's that for a radical thought? Well, that's not the way I view a local church, Pastor Jeff. Can I tell you in love, you have viewed it wrong. You know why you viewed it wrong? Because nobody ever taught you right. I'm telling you God's plan for the church. This isn't my idea. Matter of fact, if you left it up to me, I wouldn't come up with this. But he did. And you know what I have discovered? When all else fails, follow directions. Okay? When all else fails, you, you, okay, what did he tell me? To do So here's, I'm giving you a picture of the church from God's viewpoint. Now notice what happens when this takes place, when everybody finds their fit and begins to move in it. The church will be built up, not by the leaders doing everything themselves. That's how leaders have nervous breakdowns. That's why thousands of churches close every month. You know why? The, the leader, the preacher, just gives out because he's doing everything. He's the preacher, the teacher, the counselor, the financier, the construction guy. He's this, he's that, he's the other. He sweeps the floors, cleans the bathrooms, he does it all. And finally, he just expires and said, I've, I've had all this fun I can stand. I'm going to go sell shoes. And he gets out. But that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was for him to understand that everybody he's looking at is gifted. That's what it says. Is that not what it says, church? A church where only the leaders are attempted or attempting to build the church is going to limp along because it's missing arms, feet, hands, ears. It's usually weak and it's often sick. When the leader is the only one doing anything. A healthy congregation is one in which the leaders succeed in motivating, training, and deploying the people in a variety of ministries according to the gifts of each member. This is exciting because, you know, we're not called, Christianity is not a spectator sport. Christianity is a, is a participatory sport where everybody gets on the field and everybody has a chance to run with the ball. And if they don't run with the ball, they make it possible for somebody else to run with the ball. But everybody's involved. It, it is not for a select few. Now, the result is that each member, every member brings strength and depth to the ministry of the body as a whole. And this in turn causes the body of Christ to grow into maturity. Now, this is not what most of you saw growing up, but it's God's plan for the church. It's God's plan for the church. Amen. It's God's plan. Now, we so often see troubled and sickly churches 
that we forget what a truly healthy church looks like. You know how a doctor can tell you're sick? Because he knows what healthy looks like. If he doesn't know what, hel- if he doesn't know what healthy looks like, how's he going to tell if somebody is sick? He's got to have something to measure everybody up against. So we have a normal temperature, 98.7? Six. See, see I'm, I'm so well, I haven't taken it in so long, I don't remember. But anyway, 98.6. Now, if he didn't know a normal temperature was 98.6, he might think 102 is normal or 94 is normal. But he says, here's normal, and I hold everything else up against that. I know what a healthy body looks like. I know what a healthy temperature is like. So we've got to know, church, what a healthy church looks like so we can sell it, see if we're healthy or not. So let's look. He tells us what a healthy church looks like in verses 13 through 16. He says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, then, everybody say then. Now we've got one thing happening after another here. One thing causes another. Then we will no longer be infants, babies, wetting our diapers, throwing temper tantrums, upset, picking up a little bitty offenses, always bothered about something, always criticizing something. We won't be that way. We will be grown-ups spiritually. No longer tossed back and forth by the waves, No longer tossed about by every wind of doctrine, knowing what we believe. And we won't be affected by the cunning craftiness of people. We know a phony, when we see a phony, we know false doctrine, when we see it, we know what's right, we know what's wrong, we're not tossed around anymore, and we are grown up. We forgive, we walk in love, we overlook faults, we don't hold petty grudges or offenses, we are grown up. We have grown up. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Do you hear Everybody's involved in Paul's mind. So here are the signs of a healthy church. Here they are. A healthy church will manifest unity in the faith and in the knowledge of Jesus. That means a healthy church will agree on the essentials. See, if I stood up here and said, you know, I've had a personal revelation this week, and and God showed me that Jesus isn't the only way. You know what I would hear? A giant sucking sound. As those doors flew open and all the oxygen left the room because you left so quickly. You know why you would leave? Because that would mean I departed from an essential. But see, unity means we agree on the essentials. On the non-essentials, we just love each other. But on the essentials, we agree. That's unity. Now, it will attain, a healthy church will attain to the fullness of Christ. will manifest his character. A healthy church will look like Jesus more and more and more. A healthy church will love. A healthy church will learn patience. 
A healthy church will walk by faith and not by sight. A healthy church will honor God. A healthy church will be filled with functioning members, ministering out of what God put in them. That's a healthy church. Uh, It's hanging on me, Tyler. There we go. All right, it will be found speaking the truth in love, honesty with compassion and gentleness. You know, you can be truthful and kill somebody with truth. You ever lived with somebody like that? You ever been around somebody like that? They know the truth, and bless God, they're going to beat you to death with truth. I've been around some of those, and they're tough. They make you feel yay high. But see, the person who has grown up in Jesus and is mature will tell you the truth, but tempered with love and gentleness and compassion. And you know that when they say it, they're doing it because they love you and want to help you, not because they want to show you how right they are. That's a healthy church. It'll be found growing up into Christ, the head of the body. That's verse 15. Christ-centeredness with consistent spiritual growth. You go into a healthy church, and you're going to hear about Jesus 30 times before you leave. Christ-centered. It's all about him. We serve him. We love him. We worship him. We are taught by him. We follow him. We're discipled by him. We stand for him. We live for him. We die for him. It's all about him. Okay? So a a healthy church is growing up, but it's growing up in in a certain direction, into Christ, who is the head of the body of believers, Christ-centeredness. And a healthy church will possess an infrastructure of joint and supporting bones, ligaments, and muscles that bring support to the whole. The more all of us, the whole body, becomes involved in the ministry God has given you, the stronger the infrastructure is. It's like a the body of Christ is working out, strengthening the muscles when all the members begin moving in what God's called them to. So total involvement of all, that's verse 16, not a church of bench warmers. A a healthy church will manifest sustained bodily growth. A healthy church grows. A healthy church will experience sustained development of increased strength and new infrastructure as needed. That's verse 16. Each member contributes with his or her gift, creating an ever stronger and reproducing inner strength within the body. When, when the body of Christ, all the various members don't do anything, but just have the attitude, I'm, I'm here to listen and take what I can get out of it and then go home, that body is going to be weak. But when everybody comes and says, it's not what you can do for me, but it's what can I do for you? What can I do for the body of Christ? and they begin to contribute out of what God has put in them, that body of believers grows strong. And finally, a healthy, mature church will see every part of the body doing its work. That's verse 16 again. Now, when all these things begin to happen, our churches will no longer be infants, tossed and blown and manipulated. Christians won't be found deceiving each other. Instead, we'll be speaking the truth, and, uh, speaking the truth but also speaking it with love. Now, I'm impressed with the last pass, uh, phrase of this passage, and I've, I know I've harped on it this whole night, but here it is. Read it with me. As each part does its work. Now, let me ask a question. What are you doing? I'm not here to hammer you. 
I'm here to awaken you. Because, listen, I started preaching because somebody got in my face. They saw what was in me before I saw what was in me. I had my, my leadership. The guy who I thought hung the moon and the stars with it, who I just thought was Jesus part two, and I was receiving the word from him, he got in my face one day. And here's what he did. And I, was, I had simply told him this. I had said, whatever I can do, I don't want to get out of the light because I fade away. I'm sorry. This is, But um, I said to him, anything I can do to help, show me. And you know what he had me doing? Just taking a few people out back and leading a little prayer meeting before the service. And I was thrilled to do that. I had never opened my mouth to teach or preach. And one day, he calls me aside and says, Jeff, I'm going to medical school. I said, oh, what does that mean? He said, you're doing the meeting. (laughs) I went home and I was sick. I couldn't eat for three days. I called him back and said, you're wrong. You have got it wrong. I don't know what you were eating but you got it wrong. I have terrible stage fright. I can't do it. He said, you have to. There's no one else in my face. I said, you can find somebody. You know the whole world. He said, the Lord didn't tell me anybody else. He told me you. I was sick. I thought the world was over. I said, me, stand up in front of these people, a packed out house, that is used to him? Are you kidding me? I'll be stepping in a size 16 shoes? He said, it's you. The week that I was supposed to finally do it for the first time, I called him several times that week. Uh, (laughs) Let's say his name was Bill. Bill, man, I'm sick. Well, you'll get better. I said, no, no, I think this is going to (laughs) last. You'll get better. Now, let me tell you, I walked in that night, and here's... All these people, and it was packed out. And they didn't know he was leaving. So he announced. Now, get you, I had hair down to here. When I turned sideways, you couldn't see me anymore. I was 130 pounds soaking wet. I was a hippie's hippie. Ponytail, wire rim glasses, you know, cool. But boy, was I not. I couldn't picture myself. He, he stands up and says, I'm, I'm going to medical school, and Jeff is going to take it. I saw a couple of people get up and walk out, and I died. But you know what happened? I got up. I couldn't tell you what I said. I just dribbled something out. I did my best. But the next week, they came back. And you know what happened to me within two or three months? I was on fire. And I loved it And because I'd gotten over it. But my whole point is this. Somebody got in my face and said, get in there. Get in there. So if you don't obey God, somebody's going to get in your face. If nothing else, the Holy Ghost is going to get in your face. Say, come on. So what are you doing? Are you doing anything? Anything to reach out and minister to people? Do you witness? Do you you testify? Do Do you pray? Are you involved in the church in any way? Life groups? Anything. Something. Anything. There's a gift in you that is lying there waiting to be opened. The job of the leaders is to equip each part to do its work. But ultimately, each member must commit himself or herself to giving time and energy to the gifts and ministries God has given them. Now, what does this mean in practice? 
Let's make it practical. First, it requires pastors and teachers to concentrate on their primary role of equipping and to stop doing everybody else's work. Okay? Second, it requires members of the congregation to discover their own ministries and begin to practice them effectively so that the body of Christ may be built up as each part does its work. So, Pastor Jeff, I want to do it, but I don't know what I'm called to do. Let me tell you how you find it out. Where's your desire? What cranks your chain when you think about doing it when it comes to the things of God? Do you like serving people? Do you like witnessing? Do you like just helping in practical ways? What is it that is your burden? What is it when you see somebody else do it, you say, I'd like to do that? See, well, this guy didn't know who got in my face and turned the leadership of this meeting over to me was that I had been begging God to give me an outlet to share his word. And boy, did I get what I prayed for. And But when I got it, I was terrified of it. But God put in my heart a burden to do what I'm doing right now. It's never left me. It's never left me. 41 years, it's never left me. Through thick and thin, highs and lows, dark and light, it has never left me. So what's your burden? What do you like doing? Think about it. Because what he calls you to do, he gives you a divine want to do. A divine want to do. A divine want to do. It requires leaders to lead and church members to follow their leaders into the exciting task of seeing before our eyes the church of Jesus Christ begin more and more to feel and sound and act and love like Jesus Christ himself in this world. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You got it tonight? Every part doing its work. So you pray about what you heard me share in this first half of this message tonight. You pray about it because there's something in you that needs to come out. Every one of you. Now, next, Paul tells us that in order to be used of the Lord like this, we're going to have to put on clean clothes, spiritually speaking. If you're going to be used of God, you're going to have to live a godly life. Now, look at what follows in, uh, in chapter 4, verse 17, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, is a call to godly living in all areas of life. Chapter 5, 25 through 32, he talks about your speech. Clean it up. In chapter 5, verses 3 to 7, he talks about your sexual life, your sexual mores. Uh, In chapter 5, verse 18, he talks about the use of intoxicants like alcohol. In chapter 5, verses 21 through chapter 6, verse 4, family relationships. If Jesus doesn't work at home, he's not going to work anywhere else. Okay? And employer-employee relationships, yeah, he even goes there. In chapter 6, verse 9. So let's begin. Chapter 4, verse 17 to 18. He says, So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Wow. Now let me just pick these two verses apart a little bit. 
That word futile is a scary word to me. I hate the word futile because it means you're giving all your energy, all of your life energy into something that absolutely goes nowhere. It means you're just on a hamster's wheel running with all your might, but you're going nowhere. A futile life. It says that God gave the children of Israel, that first generation, over to futility for the rest of their days because they rebelled against him. It means you are not living with any purpose. And you take away my purpose from me and I'm not, not in good shape. My purpose in Christ is what makes me tick. The word futile comes from a Greek word meaning state of being without use or value, emptiness, futility, purposelessness, transitoriness. You're just drifting through life with no purpose whatsoever. Just drifting. Just whatever comes along, you're like a pinball in there, boing, 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 off of different things. But you're not going anywhere in particular because you have no purpose. You're living in futility. Now, the world may think they have big, big thoughts and, and a lot to say, but in the end, their thoughts are empty. Their thoughts are vain. Their thoughts are fruitless. They are darkened in their understanding. They have no light. You know what you're receiving right now? Light. Because the word of God is light. Light came into the world, and they love darkness more than light. But the word of the Lord is light, and it is life. The words I speak unto you, they are life, and they are spirit. So then verse 18 continues saying, they, the lost, are separated from God's life. Isn't that a terrifying thought? Separated from God's life. Their selective rejection of God has shut them off from God's life. That means you're a dead man walking, a dead woman walking when you don't have the life of God in you. What a horrible existence. Separated means to estrange, to alienate. How tragic. God's life is all around us, pulsating throughout creation. And to miss out on this incredible life because of selective deafness is the worst deafness and tragedy of all. I don't know how people make it out there anymore without the Holy Spirit. I really don't. How how people make it without Jesus. Well, I do know how they do it. They smoke it. They drink it. They toke it. They shoot it. They snort it. They deaden themselves to the harsh realities that are around them and to the pain that is within them. So, who being past feeling, he says in verse 19, who being past feeling had given themselves over to lewdness, which is out of control sensuality, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Let me tell you where people go when they reject God. They always go into sensuality. You look at our culture right now. Look at our culture and look at its focus on sex and sensuality. And tell me that our culture hasn't unplugged from God. Because when you unplug from God, that's where you go. That's the life you go towards, a life of pleasure. Paul prophesied in the last days they will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. See, when you're a lover of God, that takes care of your pleasure need. Okay, but when you're unplugged from God, you've got to go find some substitute, and that's where you go. So who being past feeling? Now, I want to take that phrase. I find that as well a frightening phrase. When we harden our hearts against God, folks, listen, we are walking in grave danger. When you say 
no to God, when he's convicting you about something, when he's dealing with you about something, and you say no to God, you say, no, I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to go my own way, God. And you harden your heart against God, you have just stepped into a major danger zone. You are a ship out at sea without a sail and without a compass and without an anchor. When we harden our hearts against God, the Bible says that our consciences can become seared as with a hot iron. Now listen carefully to me because I'm going to talk about our culture for a minute tonight. A seared conscience. Everybody say the word seared with me. Have you ever ironed? And I've done some ironing in my day. And I do remember when a guy irons, he always gets burned by the iron. And I remember getting burned several times. But the funny thing is when that iron burns you, it hurts at first, but then that skin becomes dead. And you can't feel anything there. It's seared. Do you know what it's telling us? It's saying that these people who being past feeling, they have walked away from God. And what it means when it says past feeling is they have seared their conscience. Our consciences become seared like with a hot iron, and the result is we become past feeling. Now, this phrase is from a Greek word, apogeo. Apogeo means to cease to feel pain or grief or, in our vernacular, conviction. When you walk away from God, you say, no, You say, no, and you say, no, I'm going my way. No, Lord, I'm not going to obey your word. No, I think I'm going to do this instead of that. I'm going to go my own, I'm going to do my own thing. Then eventually what happens is at first you hear God talking like you hear me now. And then he's like this. 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 You're out there, and you think you found freedom. You think you have discovered that all that church talk and Bible talk was a bunch of hooey because you're out here living high on the hog and doing what you want and living in the flesh, and you don't feel guilty? No, because your conscience has become seared. Psychologists call a sociopath. A sociopath means I can hurt people, I can do bad things, I can cause people to cry and weep and hurt because of me, but I don't care. I feel no guilt, I feel no remorse, I am, I am emotionally dead to natural human feelings. That's a sociopath, but the Bible definition is a seared conscience. Show me a sociopath and I'll show you a seared conscience. I'll show you somebody who resisted God over and over and over until their conscience was dead. The Bible says that in the last days, men will be without natural affection. Ever wonder what that meant? No natural affection? Dead consciences will become a pandemic phenomenon in the last days. Dead consciences. People will be walking around and they'll do terrible things to one another and there's no guilt, there's no remorse. Do we not see that everywhere in our culture right now? Do we not see Washington doing all kinds of evil and saying, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. What are you talking about? If I've got to lie to get what I want or kill to get what I want or deceive to get what I want, that's okay. The end justifies the means. I feel no remorse, no guilt. Aren't people saying that more and more in our culture? Things that used to shock and awe don't anymore. There's no more shock over sin. There's no more shock over moral crimes. We just kind of blink at it. 
Desensitization is taking place. Defining deviance down is taking place. Paul said dead consciousness will become a pandemic phenomenon in the last days, devoid of normal familial feelings of love and care and devoid of conviction for moral crimes. I personally believe that that's how abortion has gained a grip on America. You have got to get rid of normal, natural affection, motherly affection, motherly care. That child is supposed to be nurtured and loved and expected and received, not murdered without even blinking. But then good news to the Christian, Paul says, how many of you are ready for some good news here? All right. Paul says, I want you to read this with me. But you... Come on, everybody. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. Amen. Amen. Now, the the kind of behavior and empty living that we just talked about has nothing to do with Jesus Christ and what you've been taught about him. You've been taught by him to put off the old corrupt self and put on the new, holy, and righteous self. Now, Paul uses the analogy of taking off dirty clothing and putting on clean clothing several times in the Bible. It's all throughout his teachings. Uh, Every Christian gets dressed twice every morning. We get dressed in natural, normal clothes, and we're supposed to be getting dressed in Jesus every morning. Put on Jesus. Put off the old man. Put on Jesus. Put off the old man. In Romans 13, look at here's one example. Paul says, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and in envy. Now say verse 14 with me, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Isn't that good stuff? Put on Jesus. Now, what's that talking about? It's talking about you put Jesus on by faith just like you get dressed in the morning. You go into your spiritual closet and you have two sides of the closet. Here's the flesh and here's the spirit. You can put on that old man You can walk out in a bad mood, snapping at everybody, thinking lustful and wrong thoughts, and go out into the day that way. Or you can put on the new man, the Lord Jesus, and walk out filled with the Spirit, filled with God's thoughts, filled with God's uh, Word, and face the devil and the flesh and the world that way. It's, It's a choice you make every single day and many times throughout the day. We don't become Christians by reforming our ways, turning over a new leaf, or making a New Year's resolution. The miracle of Christianity is that God performs a miraculous change inside of us by his Holy Spirit, and Jesus called it born again, which Scott preached about Sunday. Now, let me give you an illustration. When I'm hot, sweaty, and dirty, come out from mowing the lawn or working in the garden in the middle of August, I'm hot, dirty, and sweaty. Nothing feels better than a long, hot shower. And when I come out, I'm fresh and clean. But let me ask you a question. What would you think of me if when I came out of the shower, fresh and clean, I said, where are those clothes I was wearing out in the garden? And I'm going to put those on again. If you're standing there, you're going to go, are you crazy? 
They're smelly, stinky, dirty, sweaty. You don't want that. You want to put on new clothes on your freshly clean body. Or you would think something's wrong with me. All right, here's the illustration. Since our inner man has been washed and made completely clean, we should then dress ourselves in Jesus. The Bible says you've been created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I want you to say that with me, everybody. You've been created to be like who? God. In what? True righteousness and holiness. In other words, you are called to walk in genuine, authentic righteousness and holiness. So put on clean clothes. And the only clean clothes to put on every day is Jesus. And how do you do that? You go straight to the Word of God. When you get up in the morning, you read that Bible, and as you read that Bible and pray, you are dressing yourself in the garments of Jesus Christ. And as you get into that Word and you walk in the Spirit, the Spirit will mortify, will put down, will defeat all of the push and pull and temptation and proddings and influence of the flesh. Paul continues along this vein, the next three verses, and we're going to finish with this. Verse 22, read it with me. That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. You're driving down the highway, somebody pulls in front of you, and you revert, you reach into the closet, and you turn left, and you grab fleshly garments, and things fly out of your mouth that you haven't heard in a while, and you have a choice right then and there. You say, okay, hold it by faith. I put off those old clothes. And right here in the middle of rush hour traffic, I put on Jesus Christ. It's really that simple. You do it by faith. Verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may, or that you put on the new man, you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, the key to putting on Jesus, everybody, is the renewal of our minds. I can't say that enough. I'm a broken record with our staff. I tell them all the time, don't ever get away from your private devotional with God because that's your lifeline right there. That's your lifeline. If you quit getting up in the morning and spending time with him, you may feel okay for a while, but it's going to catch up with you. It's going to catch up with you. And you're going to find yourself making mistakes you shouldn't be making and making fleshly decisions you wouldn't have made if you've been walking in the Spirit. We can't afford to get away. Abide in me and I and my words abide in you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you will produce the fruit that is in the vine and you will ask what you will and it will be done for you. The renewal of our minds. Here's the deal. One of the biggest traps we as Christians fall into is that we turn back to what is familiar what we were used to in the world. Particularly we do this when we're in the middle of a red-hot, difficult, dry trial. It can seem so easy to look and act like unbelievers all over again. But here's what Paul is saying. Don't admire unbelievers. Proverbs says, let not your heart envy sinners. They live in darkness and emptiness, and they've given over their lives to unbridled sexuality and paydays coming someday for every one of them. 
and they will die without God. Don't admire or try to emulate them. Take off what kind of behavior like you would, or that kind of behavior like you would dirty clothing. Just take it off. Put it off. Put it down and put on Jesus every day. That old self, Paul says, has been corrupted by its deceitful desires. Those fleshly desires that ruled and reigned in us when we were lost serve to corrupt us. James said each one is tempted when, he, when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. The answer to defeating these deceitful desires is the work that God is doing in us, making us new in the attitude of our minds. And until we learn this principle, church, God won't be able to use us or our gift the way he wants to. So after telling us we're all gifted, he said, now let me tell you the kind of life you need to be living for God to really be able to use you. So, well, Pastor Jeff, that ruins it for me. I can't live that kind of life. You're absolutely right. You can't. But he can live it in you. He can live it in you. And he can live it through you. And that's what Christianity is all about. I can't forgive people I don't even like. I can't love people I don't like in the natural. But God helps me to love several, not in this church. I want to be careful here. I've been on this planet for a while now. But there's people in my world I don't like. But you know what? I don't have to like them. He didn't tell me I had to like them. He told me I had to love them. And I can love anybody in Jesus. Is it always easy? No. Can I do it? Yes, I can. He gradually changes our desires, and with that change comes new habits. I call them holy habits and transformed lifestyles. So we're to cooperate with what God is doing by putting on or clothing ourselves with the new self, and we're to refuse to clothe ourselves with the old dirty clothes any longer, but clothe ourselves with Jesus himself. And so therefore, we're called to live a godly life as well as to be a minister. Now, next time, I'm going to speak on grieve not the Holy Spirit with blithering, blathering, bitterness, and brawling. Let's stand up together, can we? <laughs> How many of you are glad you came to church tonight? In the Word good? Oh, the Word is good. Father, we just come into your presence and thank you. That you've called us to a ministry. You've called us for our lives to count for God. You've called us to good works. And, Lord, you've also anointed us to live the kind of life we need to live so that we can be clean vessels in your hands. And, church, I'm going to ask you to lift your hands to the Lord. And I want you to say with me, say to him, say, Lord Jesus, there's a gift in me. If I don't know what it is, Help me to discover it. Reveal it to me. That my life might count for God. And if I do know what my gift is, give me that fit, that outlet, that is the fit for what you've put in me. Now say with me with Isaiah, here am I, Lord. Send me in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Sweet trust.
He needs a microphone here. Yes. Just to take him at his word. 